Good evening. I'd like to call this March 8th, 2022 school board regular meeting to order. Dr. Noonan, could you please call the roll? Uh, yes, Ms. Downs. Here. Dr. Gould. Here. Dr. Ortiz. Here. Mr. Reitinger. Here. Ms. Silverman. Here. Ms. Tice. Here. And Dr. Dimmick is out this evening. That's right. Thank you very much. If everyone could please join me now in saying the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. I'd now like, I'm now seeking a motion to adopt the agenda. Move to adopt the agenda as presented. Thank you, Mr. Ryinger. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. All those in favor say yes. Yes. Any opposed? Okay. The motion passes. We're moving on to uh, section two of our agenda, recognitions and reports, and we do not have any this evening. We are now moving on to section three, public comments and requests. In accordance with school board bylaw 2.30, the time for each speaker is limited to three minutes. Additional written statements may be submitted to the clerk for dissemination to board members and for the record. Dr. Noonan, do we have any speakers this evening? Yes, Chair Downs, we have two speakers this evening. Uh, we have Pam Mahoney and Jeff Buck. So Ms. Mahoney, put her slip in first so she goes first. Hi, good evening, everyone. Um, my name is Pam Mahoney. I um, many familiar faces up there. I've been a teacher here in Falls Church for almost 20 years. I've lived here for almost a decade, and I'm excited that the school board is starting the conversation about collective bargaining. Collective bargaining will give all staff a voice, admin, licensed staff, and education support professionals. Collective bargaining will allow us to create long-term conditions to serve students and families better, and will allow for better support, recruitment, and retention of staff. I know that there are literally hundreds of staff members who are interested in the prospect of collective bargaining. As the process moves forward, I also know that many of us look forward to helping to craft a resolution that the school board will approve. One of the best things about working in Falls Church is the opportunity to closely collaborate to build a community of educational excellence. I believe collective bargaining is the next step in uh, solidifying what we already do here in Falls Church, which is living our values. And I'm grateful that the school board has put collective bargaining on the agenda tonight. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Mr. Buck. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much as school board members, Dr. Noonan, for providing me this time to speak um, on behalf of the agenda item of collective bargaining. Um, I've been a seventh grade civics teacher at Henderson and a cross country track and field coach at Meridian uh, for past nine years. Um, and I've been actively involved with the exploration of collective bargaining um, this past school year. And in my work, I've really um, found the palpable excitement and steadily growing amongst our staff members and staff members in various capacities throughout the district and having uh, this possibility FCCPS um, and really being one of the first ones in Northern Virginia um, to really begin this journey. Um, people are very excited about that. Um, from my past experience with collective bargaining, uh, my mom was also an educator. Um, and she was an educator in a state that had collective bargaining, and I saw how much it created a stronger bond 
and communication amongst uh, all staff members throughout the district. Uh, my hope is with collective bargaining that we'll be able to represent the voices, not just of myself as a teacher, um, but the voices of everyone uh, in our amazing school district uh, that really help it function on a daily basis. Um, I know many people I talk with around the district looking forward um, to the next steps and the prospect of collaborating in collegial work um, to ensure that all FCCPF staff have an active seat um, at the bargaining table in the future. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And we will now move on to section four, our closed meeting. If I could have someone read us into closed, please. Pursuant to the Virginia Freedom of Information Act, I move that the board convene a closed meeting for the following purpose to discuss or consider the identified subject matter. Personnel under section 2.2-3711A1, in particular staff appointments, staff reassignments, staff resignations, staff retirements, staff performance, staff change in position, staff separation, dependent care leave, long-term medical leave, child care leave requests and leave of absence, and advisory committee appointments, and student matters under section 2.2-3711A2, in particular non-resident tuition students. Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, Ms. Tice. All those in favor say yes. 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 Any opposed, say no. Okay, the motion carries. Uh, Dr. Noonan, do you anticipate this closed meeting taking very long? I do not. I anticipate probably five to 10 minutes max. Okay, thank you. We'll be back in five to 10 minutes. Thank you. <clears throat> excuse me. Whereas the Falster uh, City School uh, Board. Excuse me, Mr. Yeah. Ortiz, we're just on 4.03. Oh, 4.03. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're fine. Oh, yeah. I'd like to move that the school board reconvene to open meeting. Thank you. May I have a second? Yes, Ms. Silverman. Thank you. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Okay. Motion carries. And now we are at 5.01. Uh, Dr. Ortiz, would you like to take this one? Let me try that. Um, whereas the Falls Church City School Board has convened a closed meeting on this date pursuant to an affirmative recorded vote in accordance with the provisions of the Virginia Freedom of Information Act and whereas Section 2.2-3711B of the Code of Virginia requires a certification by this school board that such closed meeting was conducted in conformity with Virginia law, now, therefore, be it resolved that the Falls Church City School Board hereby certifies that, to the best of each member's knowledge, one, only public business matters lawfully exempted from open meeting requirement by Virginia law were discussed in the closed meeting to which this certification applies, and two, only such biz public business matters as were identified in the motion convening the closed meeting were heard, discussed, or considered. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. May I have a second? Thank you, Ms. Tice. Dr. Noonan, could you please call the roll? Yes, Ms. Downs. Yes. Dr. Gould? Yes. Dr. Ortiz? Yes. Mr. Reininger? Yes. Ms. Silverman? Yes. Ms. Tice? Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we are now at uh, item six, our consent agenda. I would like to ask for unanimous consent to approve our consent agenda. Hearing no objections, the consent agenda is approved. And we will now move on to section seven. 7.01, uh, this is an informational presentation on collective bargaining. And for those who watching, are watching, just to give a little bit of background, um, the Virginia legislature in 2021 um, approved collective bargaining for the state of Virginia. And so we are exploring 
uh, this option. We did have some speakers this evening address this. And um, I will actually, would it be okay if I turned it over to Ms. Minson and you could introduce our guest? Absolutely, I'd be happy to. Um, joining us this evening via Zoom is Cynthia Hudson, an attorney at Sands Anderson, who has um, a lot of, we're getting some feedback here, experience with collective bargaining and was actually involved with um, the legislature at the time that it was put forward. And we are grateful for her time and her assistance in walking us through what this could mean for our schools going forward. Thank you for joining us, Ms. Hudson. Good evening, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you tonight and to speak to you about this uh, subject that I called Virginia's new frontier in uh, employment law. Are you ready for me to get started? Or Yes, thank you, Ms. Hudson. And we're, um, again, we are going to try to keep this rather high level um, this evening for our, and this is really to inform the public um, who may not have, um, as this is new for Virginia, right? Uh, so, so some people may be more unfamiliar with this, so just sort of keeping it high level, and at the end we may have a few questions for you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I will go ahead and attempt to seamlessly share my screen with a few slides that will um, advance the presentation. But as I mentioned, I'm calling my words, collective bargaining for public employees in Virginia, local level public employees, that is, Virginia's new frontier in public employment law. New because it has been more than 40 years since any local government practice or permitted collective bargaining. And when they did so those many years ago, they did so without the express authority of the General Assembly, as the Virginia Supreme Court made clear, and as the General Assembly then confirmed by prohibiting public sector collective bargaining many, many years ago, that has changed. With the passage in the 2020 General Assembly of Virginia Code Section 40.1-57.2, local governing bodies, and that is the term used in the statute and which is expressly defined to include school boards in that category, for the first time in the state's history are expressly legally empowered to recognize and bargain with a labor union or other employee association in its capacity as the exclusive bargaining agent of that employer's employees. And in doing so to collectively bargain with them and to enter into a collective bargaining agreement with respect to any matter relating to those employees or their employment or service, as long as the governing body does so by ordinance or by resolution duly adopted by that governing body. You'll see that a number of those terms are in bold, which means that obviously they are significant terms that this presentation will attempt to address, at least at that high level uh, position that uh, Ms. Benson talked about. First to note among this is that enabling of collective bargaining by any school board or locality is an option, a local option. The law does not require that it be done or that there be any recognition of any form of a labor association or employee association for the purpose of bargaining uh, in any binding fashion with its employees. I'm going to start out by talking about what has not changed with the enactment of Virginia Code Section 40.1-57.2. Just as before May 2021, when this statute became effective, now too, since its passage, local government employees have the same right that was embedded in prior law under the Virginia Code, the right to form and to join employee associations and unions, and the right not 
to join as guaranteed by Virginia's right to work laws. That has not changed. That right existed before. It continues unabated today. What's the same? And public employers are permitted to continue to meet and confer with representatives of their employees. Purely in their discretion, they may do this. However, under a meet and confer construct, public employers could not legally grant any exclusive representative status to any given labor union or employee association, nor could they bargain with them to a point that they created any legally enforceable contract rights. So it was purely discretionary, both in terms of whether to do it and with respect to any matters that were brought forth in those beat and confer discussions. What is also the same, no striking by public employees is permitted. Then as now, any local government employee who engages in a strike is required by state law to be terminated from their employment and they are banned from re-employment, not just by the locality or school division that employed them, but they are prohibited from uh, being employed by any public entity in Virginia for at least one year, subject, of course, to due process uh, procedures for challenging the determination or the conclusion that the activity in question was actually a strike or work stoppage. But what is new and different? The ability of a local governing body, such as a school board, to create a binding legal obligation to bargain with a representative of its employees. And what is also new is a newly conferred right of those employees to compel action by that governing body or school board to address collective bargaining in one direction or another, to approve it or disapprove it, but to compel that action be taken. And that is exactly what is presented here. This is language uh, paraphrased from the statute that employees have the right to compel employers such as the school board, local public employers, to vote to adopt or not adopt an ordinance or resolution to provide for collective bargaining. And the statute further requires that any such ordinance or resolution provide specific procedures for how a labor organization or employee association might be formally recognized by that governing body or school board as an exclusive bargaining agent authorized to enter into a collective bargaining contract with that locality or school board. So what are we talking about when we talk about collective bargaining, really? We, we throw the term around and everybody has their concept of it, and certainly some understanding of it. But to formally define it, and interestingly, the statute does not do that. This is an extremely bare bones statute, which sets up a construct in which collective bargaining has been enabled, but in a very, very outlined fashion, leaving it up to the school boards and localities who've been empowered to enable it to fill in that outline with a framework for collective bargaining. And that collective bargaining is the performance of the mutual legally imposed obligation of an employer such as the school board through its representatives, typically the superintendent of the division and his or her designees, along with a representative of particular groups of employees to meet in reasonable times, reasonable places, and negotiate in good faith 
with the intention of reaching a legally enforceable agreement regarding employee wages, benefits, and all or some or none of their other terms and conditions of employment. That's a mouthful. I have emphasized here, um, both by way of a different color font and in bold, in good faith, which is an underlying principle of collective bargaining. It is not enough to pay lip service to the idea of sitting down with representatives of employees if there is not the present and full intention of reaching some agreement. Although it is not a requirement that an agreement be reached. However, the bargaining atmosphere has to be one of good faith where both sides are there to accomplish the purpose of collective bargaining. So we talked about the format, the, the method by which school boards and governing bodies are required by the new state law to enable collective bargaining if they choose to do so. Ordinances are typically the province of a local governing body. So we're talking in terms of a resolution when we speak of school board action. And certainly one of the fundamental components of a collective bargaining resolution is to define critical operative terms. We've talked about what collective bargaining is, and typically that definition includes a, the scope of collective bargaining. What subjects, what matters regarding terms and conditions of employment are, is the school board going to authorize uh, as available to be addressed in collective bargaining? We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Employee, and when I say define employee, we're talking about who is an employee for collective bargaining purposes in the sense that the school board will authorize those employees to be eligible to bargain. Typically, not every employee is so authorized. Very often and very commonly, administrative personnel, managerial personnel, supervisory employees, and these are very specifically defined terms to be included in a resolution, are very often excluded from collective bargaining because somebody in the labor management relationship uh, that collective bargaining uh, addresses has to be the management. Uh, these people, employees who work in these categories of responsibility comprise that management. Confidential employees, generally employees who support administrative, managerial, and supervisory employees in a manner that involves exposure, necessary exposure to collective bargaining policy implementation and development and collective bargaining positions once collective bargaining is enabled. The idea is that those employees at that level are entitled to rely on the loyalty of certain groups of employees who manipulate the information they are responsible for developing. So those employees and those support levels are often excluded from bargaining as well. So are very often, but not necessarily, depends on choices made by the governing body, temporary employees, probationary employees, uh, well, certainly probationary non-instructional employees, and intermittent employees. And again, those would be defined terms. You would define employee organization, association, or union, and very likely borrow the definition that is already in the state code. Exclusive bargaining representative is a critically important term to define. It is the essence of the other side of the relationship. 
in addition to the common theme of good faith that runs through collective bargaining as a concept, so too does this issue of the exclusivity of the bargaining representative for a particular group of employees who seek to negotiate. And the manner in which that representative becomes the exclusive bargaining representative is also a significant component of the resolution. It's typically done in a democratic process uh, through which the employees manifest their majority support for a particular organization representative. Uh, terms such as impasse, which certainly um, you're familiar with in terms of when you just can't get there in negotiation, there is some sticking point past which the two sides can't get. Happens often and must be defined for purposes of any given uh, employer who chooses to implement collective bargaining, as well as a means by which to break the impasse. So we talked about an exclusive representative for a bargaining unit. So what's a bargaining unit? A bargaining unit is any group of employees who share some common elements in terms of their working conditions, whether it is by the nature of what they do, the schedule on which they do it, the manner in which they're supervised, the manner in which they are trained or prepared or qualified for that work, such that it makes sense as a practical matter for only one representative to represent their interests because those interests have many common touch points. How are bargaining units addressed in a resolution? Very often, those bargaining units are pre-identified by the governing body, here by the school board in the enabling resolution. Resolutions typically provide for in an education setting, a bargaining unit of licensed instructional personnel, a bargaining unit of support personnel. Uh, there are in some states and localities bargaining units of administrative employees. But again, that's a, a policy choice to be made by the governing body that chooses to enable collective bargaining. There are other means by which bargaining units can be determined. It can be left open so that employees themselves decide through grassroots efforts which of them are have sufficient commonality that they should come together and try and bargain or together through a single representative. And in that circumstance, the resolution would specify the criteria that those employees should apply in their self-determination as a bargaining unit. And then it is uh, indeed up to the uh, governing body, the school board, to agree that that's an appropriate unit if that's the approach taken. Again, still more basic standard provisions of an enabling resolution, because here you're trying through a resolution to legislate, to set up a a legal framework for this process. And the components I'm describing are necessary components, the infrastructure of collective bargaining, which the General Assembly has left up to any individual locality or school board who chooses to do this. But the statute does require and does not leave it up to uh, the governing body to, to decide, uh, must provide for a process for certification and decertification terms that are used interchangeably with recognition and withdrawal of recognition of an exclusive bargaining representative. Again, this, this, this common thread of democratic processes by which this is done uh, is also traditional in collective bargaining. And the typical way by which 
a, an organization becomes certified or recognized as the exclusive bargaining agent of a particular group of employees is by way of an election or some other means by which uh, one may ascertain the will of a majority of employees in that unit with respect to whether they want to be represented at all, and if so, by what single employee organization. Again, this is a statutory content requirement for such a resolution. Negotiating in good faith. I talked about that as a uniform common principle underlying tenet of collective bargaining. And for the most part, you will typically see in enabling resolutions and ordinances an express imposition of the obligation to negotiate in good faith. What does in good faith mean? It's kind of like obscenity in the law where the courts say they know it when they see it. Well, typically in collective bargaining, they know when they don't see good faith and it's very factually determinative. Resolution standard provisions continue. Specification of the scope of collective bargaining subjects. Again, very often for, uh, um, included, incorporated into the definition of collective bargaining in terms of what are we resolving and imposing the obligation to, to, to do what? To meet and negotiate about what? This is the what. Very often expresses wages and other money compensation, hours and other terms and conditions of employment, and anything lesser or in between. Again, a major policy decision of the governing body that, it, that chooses to enable collective bargaining. Keeping in mind that whatever is defined as the scope of bargaining without qualification can be a mandatory subject of bargaining, meaning once collective bargaining is enabled and an exclusive representative is elected and it's time to bargain, if those subjects come up or are proposed or are suggested to be discussed, then they shall be discussed and any refusal of either side to do so is a violation of the collective bargaining legislation that's been put in place. However, others may be permissive. That is, management may choose to bargain about these subjects in its discretion and cannot be compelled to do so and failure to do so is not a show of bad faith or anything unlawful. And then of course, there are prohibited subjects of bargaining most often those subjects that are preempted because some other state or federal law governs the universe of, of issues around them. Or there may indeed be patently illegal subjects of bargaining. Basic standard provisions continue. Language preserving certain management rights. In this regard, your management rights clause and the scope of bargaining clause are the yin and yang with respect to the subject matter of collective bargaining. Anything that the governing body has chosen to retain to itself or to its management representatives to decide exclusively with no, no room for negotiation with the bargaining representative are exclusive management rights. Or they may be made permissible in terms of whether or not management chooses in any given bargaining season to allow these issues to be on the table. These are just examples of what are very often lists of up to 15 or 20 different management rights that are preserved to management in collective bargaining. Doesn't have to be, these are policy choices, once again. Statutorily, however, it cannot be made permissive, the exercise of the school board's spending 
decisions, spending discretion, the setting of its budget. So everything in a collective bargaining agreement that's negotiated at the administrative level with an exclusive bargaining agent is subject ultimately to the decision making, the fiscal decision making of the school board in Virginia. Negotiation impasse resolution procedures and other disputes that arise under any collective bargaining agreement that arises out of uh, collective bargaining is typically provided for in an enabling resolution. In the circumstances under existing law in Virginia regarding the ultimate retention of authority of school boards, we're not talking about binding arbitration. We're typically talking about something lesser than that that is advisory only, such as non-binding mediation or a fact-finding process to get past resolution and to resolve disputes that arise under any negotiated collective bargaining agreement. Finally, well, not quite finally, there's one more after this. The resolutions of this nature should, in my estimation, make clear that there are very specific responsibilities and duties and prohibitions on the conduct of both parties on, this, on each side of this equation. I'm talking here about matters such as uh, on the part of both parties, a prohibition on intimidation of employees in the exercise of their rights, whether or not to embrace collective bargaining, whether to participate in it, whether, whether to join a union or not join a union. Um, those are, are parallel prohibitions between management and unions. Employees are to be left unfettered in their freedom to exercise their discretion around this kind of concerted activity. On the union side, there's typically a requirement that they uniformly and without discrimination represent fairly every employee in the collective bargaining unit. And that is whether or not those employees are actual dues paying members of the bargaining unit. Virginia continues to be a right to work state where no employee can be denied employment or otherwise treated differently, even in a collective bargaining situation, because they choose not to be a dues paying union member. That does not, however, change the obligation of the union to represent the interests of those non-union members of the collective bargaining unit. On the employer side, must not favor any individual employee organization over others, unless of course that organization has actually been duly elected as an exclusive bargaining agent. But during a campaign for union representation, and therefore there is more than one such employee association involved, management isn't supposed to put their finger on the scale or create the perception of having their finger on the scale in terms of favoring any one or an, of those organizations or another. Those are the kinds of things, and the lists are, are, are much longer than that, of the kinds of prohibited conduct that are typically included as a standard provision in an enabling resolution for collective bargaining. And the failure to adhere to these prohibitions or to execute these responsibilities is defined as an offense, which you probably heard referred to as an unfair labor practice or prohibited practice with charge, charge procedures and adjudication procedures specified in the resolution, as well as remedies. Finally, the resolution typically provides for some way in which all of the procedures that are provided for elections, fact-finding, mediation, 
determination of who's in and who's out of, of, of a bargaining unit. Somebody has to be making those decisions. And management doesn't want it to be somebody on the union side doing it, and union doesn't want it to be somebody on the management side doing it. So we're talking about a neutral here, a neutral third party. And there are many ways to provide for this administrative infrastructure. A labor relations administrative official that is appointed with input from both sides and who has a background as a neutral and who is brought on as needed to conduct these kinds of procedures. It could be the creation of a committee. Labor picks one, board picks one, those two pick a third, and that body administers the procedures of the resolution. Or it could be an existing standing labor management organization, such as the American Arbitration Association or the Federal Mediation and Conciliation Service, which also offers those, um, those services. But typically this is provided for one way or the other in the resolution. Finally, just some overarching issues to consider. As I mentioned, any commitments that are made in the bargaining process forever remain subject to appropriation and the spending discretion of the school board or governing body. And there are all kinds of questions that are arising in Virginia law right now around the interplay between the concept of collective bargaining and what can be negotiated with what right now is dictated by statutory law, such as the employee grievance procedure, for instance, and the probationary terms of probationary teachers. Those things are going to be married in some way that the courts and perhaps the attorney general at some point have to reconcile. But it's a part of this process that, again, I call the new frontier. Any questions? Thank you so much, Ms. Hudson. That was very informative. Uh, I'll turn it over to the my colleagues. Does anyone have any questions when I start off? Yes, Ms. Silverman. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you for that presentation and thank you to the teachers who showed up today to give their uh, eloquent comments about how important this is to you and to the rest of the staff. And I'm ecstatic to hear that there's uh, such wide support for a collective bargaining agreement from your coworkers. Um, I'm strongly in favor of putting this in your hands and letting you decide your own fate versus me as a school board in some sort of paternalistic way deciding that fate for you. Um, and that said, I am, just to lay it out there, I am also strongly in favor of giving, of really not restricting, uh, you know, taking things off the table and leaving as many bargaining chips as possible on the table for both management and for the uh, bargaining units in order to negotiate as many terms as you want to and come to a contract that you believe that both sides can feel are, are um, in, in their best interests. So I think taking things off the table and limiting certain issues doesn't allow for a full bargain for exchange, which I don't believe is in not just the best interests of our teachers and staff, but ultimately um, the most important for the students. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. Dr. Ortiz? Yeah, th uh, thank you, Ms. Hudson, for the really informative presentation. I have a question kind of about process. Um, there's, um, uh, a, you know, there's a whole lot to think about here. Um, there's seven of us, and there's, you know, we have um, the help of the team from central office, and we have relationships with teachers. What is the, what are ways in which you've seen such agreements been um, 
been kind of developed, you know, the, the outlines of those agreements developed so that there's a good common understanding of what the various components that you discussed are going to be so there are no surprises at the end of the day. How, you know, what, what are some, some kind of best practices in terms of moving the ball down the, down the field that you can recommend to us? This, the, the actions that, that school boards and governing bodies take in cobbling together uh, a collective bargaining resolution or ordinance involve such a, a, a larger number of, of policy decisions than, than, than we have the opportunity to, to, to address tonight. But certainly, and, and what's best practice is, is really in the eye of the governing body as customized and, and influenced by conditions on the ground in your school division uh, and, and, and the relationships that, that very often pre-exist with the organizations that may be interested in organizing your employees. So if we throw out an example of a best practice, for instance, uh, and, and I'm going to say best in, 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 in quotes, um, there may be um, let's say a, a decision or, or some discussion around whether or not um, the resolution should specify as, as a best practice. And, and, I, and when I say this, I mean putting something in the resolution versus leaving it to be negotiated in a contract can be a best practice with respect to any number of issues because you want to foster uniformity and lack of dispute with respect to that issue. For instance, let's say the duration contract. Perhaps a, a policy belief or goal is that you not be in the position or the administration not be in the position of having to negotiate a contract with you know, three, four bargaining units every year. Maybe you think that's inefficient. Maybe you think there are opportunity costs involved there. So you say as a matter of a provision in the resolution, there shall be no collective bargaining agreements negotiated for a lesser duration than three years. And whether that's a best practice or, or not varies with the circumstances of the enabling body. But that's the kind of thing, the, the kind of exercise that you're going through or, or, or might go through to decide what's, what's a best practice for you. And very often it's a matter of comparing uh, your situation and, and making your decisions against decisions that you've seen other like bodies make and whether it makes sense to you. But I, I see it as starting out with knowing what your goals are in considering collective bargaining in the first place. And, and, and if you're not able to clearly articulate that, then it's very different, it's very difficult to pinpoint what might be best practices for you. Because those best practices stem from what you're trying to achieve. And what you're trying to achieve stems from what is it that I'm perhaps trying to fix with collective bargaining that I'm not able to fix in the current structure? And once those things are identified, it becomes a little bit easier to answer the question or for someone to suggest to you what are best practices to achieve your goals. Um, I know that's a, a roundabout answer, but it is an extremely difficult question to answer without those foundational premises being addressed. 
All right, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Miss um, Hudson. I'm, <laughs> I didn't mean to, to stump you or open up uh, too big of a too big of a door there, but I think the bottom line is is that we should have probably have an open discussion among the board as well as with some of the employees about what our goals are and where we'd like to see ourselves in a few years, and that probably would set the good stage for having a, a successful agreement. Mr. Reininger. Uh, thank you very much for the informative, concise presentation. It was really good, and I think it was going to be very helpful to um, our community. Um, my question is, I'm going to take this off to talk. Um, my question is uh, about the interaction of two of the things you talked about. So at the start, you said one of the things that hadn't changed was sort of the right to meet and confer. But then later, you talked about the um, the bargaining unit and the exclusive bargaining representative. So what I'm trying to figure out from your experience is you know, how do those two things interplay in the sense that how does communication that is not at the bargaining table about issues of concern take place between members of a authorized or a certified bargaining unit and either school board members or the administration. You know, so for example, we had two staff come here today to talk to us. Um, what if one of those staff met one of us in a grocery store and wanted to talk about, you know, wages, terms and conditions of employment? Um, how is that affected by uh, a collective bargaining approach in this context? Thank you. It, it is profoundly affected by the enabling of collective bargaining. That principle of exclusivity is a cornerstone of collective bargaining, meaning nobody else gets to negotiate what's gonna happen in terms of the terms and conditions of employment of that group employee, of employees except that duly elected representative. So while bargaining unit employees may seek audiences with school board members, they may seek an audience with the superintendent, there are going to be issues with respect to the respect of the rights of that exclusive bargaining representative if that goes on regularly or in ways where that process is used to influence negotiation around the, the, the union or the employee association. So yes, I mean, it, 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 collective bargaining supplants that process, quite frankly. But I but, but keep in mind too, not everybody in any organized workforce, not everybody is in a collective bargaining unit. I talked about the categories of employees who are typically excluded. So there would still be room for those folks who do not have a duly elected representative speaking for them because they don't have the right to collectively bargain to seek an audience with individual school board members, with their managers, their supervisors, the superintendent to get their needs met in terms of what they want uh, regarding their terms and conditions of employment. So there's, there's still space for it, but there's no question that there will be friction, there will be problems if bargaining unit employees who are duly represented by an elected representative try to go around that representative to the decision makers. Yes, Ms. thank you, Ms. Dreinger and Ms. Tice. Thank you. Um, I actually had a very similar question. And so just to sort of clarify uh, a, li a little more, when you say there's room, is that just um, employees who who don't meet the definition of the 
of the unit, or is that employees who aren't part of the dues, aren't dues-paying members? I missed that. No, dues-paying or non-dues-paying does not make a difference with respect to membership in a bargaining unit. If you identify a bargaining unit as all licensed instructional personnel, and let's say they're just drawing a number out of, let's say there are 100 of them, and 20 of them, though, are not members of the organization that represents that bargaining unit. Those individuals are, well, all employees remain free as a general concept to, to, to talk to whomever they want about whatever they want. But in terms of there being anything binding that happens that influences what might go into a contract, that is the exclusive province of the duly elected representative of that employee group. And again, without regard to whether or not we're talking employees who are members, dues-paying members of that group or not, we're talking simply about whether or not they are members of a bargaining unit, which is a broader concept than union members. Got it, thank you, that's that's very helpful. Um, and I guess just as a further clarification, so is that something that you would recommend? I mean, I think what we're trying to get to, or some of us are, are, are wrapping our heads around, is that we're so little, right? Our, our community is so small. We have a lot of personal relationships. Um, and so there is that whole, you know, meeting each other in the grocery store and on the soccer field and all of those things. And so what would, trying to figure out what how those dynamics would change on a personal level. So is that something that you would think would come into play in terms of when we're considering what terms um, we're putting into the resolution or we would we would put into a resolution in terms of what 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 would limit natural conversation um, because there's so I, much I, interplay? I think so. I, I, definitely. I, I have seen ordinances and resolutions that try to address just this concern that you're speaking of by making or making the statement that individual school board member rights with respect to their First Amendment rights to, to, to express their thoughts about employee working conditions and wages you know, remains inviolate. And the right as well to speak with employees as members of their constituency, with your elected representatives. And, and but then it, they include a, a caveat or a qualifier that says, however, no individual school board members conversations in this regard are, are binding or have any effect in collective bargaining, which quite frankly is, is just kind of incorporating a general legal principle that none of you individually can act as the board. Anyway, you speak through a majority voting uh, in, 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 in proper form. That's so helpful, thank you. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. So going back to, you know, just kind of the discussion that we're having with, you know, running into a teacher at the grocery store or even meeting with a teacher or staff person separately, you know, and we can only speak as one voice, as you just said, through a majority vote. Um, and I forget the phrasing that you used a couple of minutes ago, but you said, yes, board members can meet with teachers and staff, but we just can't like make negotiations, we can't do anything binding on those discussions. But we can still listen, we can still have the conversations, we can still hear about how things are going in their workplace. Um, and I know that we um, currently have advisory committees, I know that other jurisdictions have contracted specifically, and again, this is something that I would like to leave on the table for 
the bargaining units, but have specifically bargained for the right to still continue advisory committees. Um, you know, so the, basically promoting the com communication without any binding force. And, and, and that's, that, that's correct. This bargaining framework, as I mentioned in, in the presentation, it's kind of a, a two-edged sword that the General Assembly's enabling legislation is so skeletal. On the one hand, there's very little mandatory guidance, very, very few mandatory provisions. But on the other hand, you have a blank slate as to how you want to customize and create a collective bargaining framework Falls Church City Public Schools. And if that's something that a majority of you wish to see in any resolution that you choose to, to, to adopt to enable collective bargaining, then there is some language that can be crafted to make it happen. And it wouldn't be necessarily inconsistent with the principle. We would just try to have to make those, 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 those two concepts consonant with each other. Okay. So basically, because it's a blank slate, anything is contractable, as long as it's not illegal. Well, it, it, well, no, not, 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 not anything. So I don't mean to it, it, put you in that bucket, but the, the not the entire sky is the limit. But you have a lot of latitude with respect to what you make negotiable, and the procedure, and the process, and the rights that you extend to to employees and to unions and to exclusive bargaining representative unions in, in, in this setting. Because one of the things that you are doing here is acting as a legislature. You will be making the law of collective bargaining as it affects Falls Church City Public Schools. It is very much like writing a statute. Great, thank you. I mean, that, that's essentially what, you, what you'd be doing, uh, except it's a local level, uh, a local level piece of legislation. Any other? I know Dr. Dimmick isn't here this evening, but one question Ms. Hudson, one of our members isn't here this evening, um, but that she did have was um, about the costs. And I know that we've, as we went through our budget uh, process, we know that we've seen our surrounding uh, jurisdictions budget quite a bit of money for the collective bargaining process. I didn't know if you could speak to that. Well, I, I don't feel I can speak to it from an authoritative perspective. Perspective, since I usually leave the dollars and cents up to the <laughs> up, up, up to the people who can quantify them better than I do, because that's their job. Um, I can certainly help to provide information about comparable costs or what other jurisdictions have said um, overall costs have been to implement collective bargaining, and I can tell you the components that contribute to that cost. For instance setting up um, the expertise that you need to administer what is a very, very intricate and quite frankly, earth-changing way of managing employees. Because essentially what collective bargaining allows or contemplates is that if you have four bargaining units, each of those bargaining units is trying to set up their own personnel system through a contract. And that requires people who know what this process involves. It requires people who know how to negotiate. It requires people who know how to administer these procedures that we were talking about. It requires people with some experience in this. 
and in particular, it's 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 more costly at this point because it's so new. Unions, employee associations have just a truckload of resources and history with public sector collective bargaining. Virginia elected officials and school division administrators typically don't because it hadn't been allowed here for over 40 years. So unless they worked somewhere else where collective bargaining was permitted, it's, it's, it's going to be a skill set that they're developing. So at least initially, you got to go out and buy those skills. Um, and, and, and that's a, 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 certainly a, a, a big cost in the initial years, and much of it will continue. But in terms of how to quantify that cost, you know, based on your size and other factors that I'm not expert at, I, I would hesitate to give you a number as opposed to talking to you about the kinds of things that will give rise to the cost. Uh, thank you. No, that's exactly what I was looking for is just sort of the big picture um, because it is an involved process and it will have, um, you know, because of our small school system, it will have some pretty big implications on our, on our budget. So thank you for that. Any other questions? Uh, yes, Vice Chair Gould. Can you just follow up on that then in terms of you said you could comment on the types of costs to expect at least, maybe not the number, but can you talk about those uh, and provide that information for us? I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't hear the last part of what you said. Yeah, can you just provide the details? You said you couldn't provide the actual cost estimates since that's uh, quantified by others, but you said you could, I think you said you could provide the types of costs that we should sure, expect yeah. and, and, and the engagements that we would need to be paying for and budgeting for. I, I could indeed, you know, in, in concert with, with um, folks on your staff, I, I can definitely share that information and uh, then they can put the meat on the bones. Thank you. That's something that we can work with uh, Ms. Minson on. Uh, any other questions? And uh, Ms. Michaels for the, for the budget piece. Yes, Vice Chair Gould. What about the, uh, and again, I know, I know from your perspective, uh, you know, you're hesitant to provide just general guidance, but in, and I, um, but in terms of like the timeline, what to expect, and again, I'm sure that ranges in terms of various issues, sizes of the district, but um, the process that we should be going through, what do you expect that to look like, um, you know, in terms of timeline or um, how that would work that you've seen in other I, districts? I believe that exactly what you're doing now is how I have seen these processes come together. And that is by a, a public discussion of what collective bargaining involves, at least at the fundamental threshold level, so that all of the constituencies that this decision affects uh, have the opportunity to, to, to know more about it as you consider it, whether it's your workforce, whether it's uh, employee, grassroots employee organizations that are, are interested in the subject matter and, and, and the community at large uh, who are uh, interested in matters that necessarily affect the way a school board does, does business. But what I've typically seen that's been very effective is once the conversation starts, the governing body that seeks to explore it further, whether it's just to know more so that you can be more informed about the decision, whether it comes to you by way of a demand through certification by a group of employees that you take a vote, or whether it's at your own instance that this is something we'd like to do, it, it starts this way. And then with an authorization or direction to your administrative staff, to the superintendent, to develop information for you, perhaps to develop 
a draft resolution for you to consider so that you have something you can get your arms around. And once staff, and, and perhaps that's done through a work group that includes uh, superintendents, designees, and subject matter um, uh, experts from, from human resources and certain department heads where you can expect their employees to likely be organized, as well as perhaps a, a member or two of, 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 of the body to form a work group. They come up with something that they believe might be a consensus document for, for base consideration. And once that work group coalesces around an, an approach, a content approach, then I think it makes a lot of sense to draw into that process representatives of the actual unions that may be interested in organizing your workforce, whether it's an education association chapter, an American Federation of Teachers chapter, a Teamsters chapter, or, or, or grassroots organization that forms for this purpose, representatives of each can then be brought to the table and say, here's what our consensus work group has come up with. Here's what a consensus document that our work group uh, is considering. Tell us what you think of it. How would you change it? And then as a group, they consider and reject, consider and reject various provisions. And even out of that process, it's very unlikely that you're going to come up with a single aha document that will be presented to you all for your consideration and input, but you'll get one where they mostly agree and where they don't agree, those issues will be identified and then put before you, the body that is to make the ultimate policy decisions anyway. And, and then when it's yours, the process continues in, 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 in this open kind of forum with your asking questions and bringing your policy goals for collective bargaining to the fore and influencing that document that came out of that process in the direction that you wanted to go. Thank you, Ms. Hudson. That was very helpful. Any other questions? Well, I know we have it on good authority from Ms. Minson that you are one of the very few experts in the state of Virginia. So we feel very honored to have you tonight. And this has been very, uh, as I said, informative for us, but also uh, for the public who, um, for those of us who are native Virginians, this is something new. And uh, so we just thank you for joining us this evening in your very uh, informative presentation. I think Dr. Noonan had something he wanted to say. I, I do. I'm sorry. I have one question sort of relative to what um, Ms. Hudson just said at the end. Um, let's just um, say for a moment that we followed that sort of pathway that you just described and um, came up with a, a draft document that would be shared then with um, the, the potential bargaining units or the, the union or, or whomever the representatives are. Um, is, there, is there any um, prohibition to us um, selecting just one organization to share that with, or is it required that we have multiple organizations um, get the opportunity to participate? This gets back to the, the comment I made about not creating the perception of favoring any particular organization. Um, I have typically recommended that there be a notice that this process is going on and an invitation uh, that, 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 that's open to organizations who are in the business of representing employees in this situation in education to, 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 to come and give input. And, and, and 
you know, they can do it by email, they can do it by, by you know, seeking to join meetings of the work group. They, it, it can be the superintendent and a representative, it can be the superintendent and council and a representative, but, and they can all be in the same room or it can be separately. But to answer your question, I, I, I would not simply tap one group and say, I want your input. I, I, I leave it open so that there isn't that idea of favoring any particular group, which might have the, the, the repercussion of influencing employees with respect to who management likes. Thank you, Ms. Hudson. Anything else? Well, I'm sure, Ms. Hudson, this is not the last you'll be seeing of us. So thank you very much again for joining us this evening. This is terrific and just so very helpful. We really appreciate it your time. Absolutely my pleasure and honor to be of assistance. And I look forward to, to, to working with you if as the board continues to consider this subject. Thank you. Thank you and good night. Good night. Good night. Okay, we will move on now to section 7.02 of our agenda, agenda, approval to dispose of an asset. Uh, Dr. Noonan? Yes, thank you, uh, Madam Chair. Anytime we dispose of assets that its value is uh, in excess of $500, we do bring those to you for um, your approval. And so we are uh, at the end of the useful life of the 2009 Prius, and we would like to um, dis dispose of that um, using our um, process uh, where we uh, that goes to auction. So there's a motion at the bottom of the page, and we'd love for you to adopt the motion. Thank you. Uh, could I please, I'm seeking a motion for the uh, approval to dispose of this asset. Yes, Ms. Silverman. I move that the Falls Church Public School Board authorized the superintendent to dispose of a 2009 Toyota Prius through an online auction process with the proceeds being recognized as miscellaneous revenue in the school operating fund. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Okay, thank you. Motion passes. Uh, we're now at 7.03 Dominion Energy Virginia Charging Support Program. I'll turn that back over to Dr. Noonan. Thank you, uh, Madam Chair. We are um, this evening um, seeking adoption of, or um, seeking approval to move forward with our charging station agreement with Dominion Energy. This contract has been um, worked through by our council, Ms. Minson, um, and it's an important infrastructure component to um, taking uh, possession of two electric buses, which we hope are coming soon. So um, any questions that you might have about this document, we certainly uh, would be happy to answer those. Uh, I'll direct them to Ms. Minson, obviously. Um, but uh, again, seeking uh, your approval to move forward with uh, Dominion Energy and getting our charging stations in place. Uh, yes, Ms. Silverman. Um, I know that sometimes these projects are done without the use of certified, um, even sometimes union electricians. I'm assuming when we use Dominion Power, they, they probably will be union certified electricians. Um, for inst installation, for maintenance, for repair, and just wanted to see if that was something that we were going to be looking at for here. It's not something that's currently included in the contract. There are certain provisions required by Virginia law of who um, can be used as contractors or subcontractors, but union status is not something that's specifically contemplated in this agreement. Will they be certified electricians? 
the status of the individuals involved is not something that's contemplated in here. I could get back to you on that, okay. um, but don't have that answer in front of me. Great. Thank you. And yes, Mr. Reitinger. Uh, a question, I, I think, for Dr. Noonan, although perhaps for uh, Ms. Minson. Uh, this is just for the charging infrastructure, right, not for the buses? That, that is correct, yes. Um, and I get the parameters of the agreement. Um, is it possible to say a little bit about, you know, what the, the benefits are and what are the costs we avoid? Because I see that we don't pay for the charging infrastructure, that that's provided by Dominion, but also that at the end of the contract, the batteries can be bought for a small sum. And what I'm trying to figure out is, you know, yes, the, the, the infrastructure gets built, we still pay for the electricity. How much do we save and what are we sort of giving up in the long term in order to say um, it's, it's a good, and I'd, I'd probably be happy with um, a, you know, not a dollars and cents here and there, but you've looked at it and it's substantial financial benefit, but I wanna, I didn't see that in looking at the agreement itself. I'm gonna let Ms. Minson and, and Ms. Michael uh, answer that. Thank you for the question. One of the things is when we were looking at electric buses, the battery life has been a substantial concern as we look at the buses in the first place. So we don't believe at the end of the 15 years of useful life that the battery will have any retaining value. And in fact, we were concerned about the cost to dispose of the battery. Um, so when we were working through this agreement, paying that dollar um, to Dominion seemed to us like at this point in time and with the current knowledge of batteries, the best financial decision. That only talks about the batteries. What about the infrastructure? What's the value of the infrastructure we get? And are we giving up anything in terms of, you know, I know that the batteries can be used as a part of the grid system, but do we, are there costs to the usefulness of the devices? Is there any opportunity cost in where we can use the buses or not use the buses? Sure, no, thank you for that question. <clears throat> when we look at um, this program through Dominion, they install the infrastructure for these charges at no cost. Um, we then kind of allow them to use these vehicles as part of their vehicle to grid. So during peak times for electricity usage, if need be, they can draw from the batteries on the buses. Um, when we were contemplating this, this has been consistent language if we think way back when we first applied to the grant from Dominion to get electric buses where we weren't chosen. Um, and our analysis that we started back then was the times that were the key peak times that they would want to use the buses for their vehicle to grid potential use were times typically when we wouldn't be using the buses much in the first place. So for example, the peak electricity times tend to be in the afternoons in the summer. Um, and for Falls Church City Public Schools, our summer school program typically runs far fewer buses in the school year. So typically we run four buses during the summer instead of you know closer to 20 during the school year. I mean, we run our summer school programs Monday through Thursday, typically, and in the morning time frame. So when we did the analysis in terms of impacting our use, we didn't see this as impacting our use. Um, we know over the long term we're going to be potentially keeping or potentially obtaining more buses over time. And as we continue to get more and we start to shift the mix of our fleet, where we would have more electric to gas, we could look at these terms. Um, but initially, with just two in the fleet and our current usage times, we didn't see any negative impact there. Um, and then when we thought of the vehicle to grid and then using that power from our buses, um, we really felt like the cost savings that we would obtain from not 
putting the infrastructure in place, as well as the savings both from the fuel and then hopefully lower maintenance costs for these buses over time, um, that we would um, save money and it would be in our best interests. So for example, right now we have all of our um, diesel buses on the lot and we run block chargers on them in the winter you know, to make sure that they start, for example, and, and we won't be drawing that electricity. So if they do draw down our battery some using this vehicle to grid, um, our initial analysis really was that this program would be saving us money in the long term, right? This initial charger that they're putting in place, we will have two electric buses, but the way they do their infrastructure is they put a charging system in place for eight buses. Um, so at, at, we could get buses all the way up through eight and still benefit from this initial charging infrastructure, um, which is something we really hope to do over time. Sorry, a follow-up question. Just to be clear, we, how is the times we can use the buses and when they've got to be connected to the infrastructure specified? That's specified in Exhibit C, and right now this document only covers the two buses. So Dominion has said that the, when the point comes that we do have more electronic bus, or electric buses, they will work with us to change these times to make sure that it doesn't inhibit our use of those vehicles. So just refresh my recollection because I don't have it in front of oh. me right now. What are those times? Exhibit C um, covers Dominion Energy Virginia usage, um, and it's summer afternoons between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern time. Um, at the end of the second semester, but prior to the beginning of the next standard academic term. So it would be that time that we are in summer school in those weeks that we don't have summer school as well. Okay, so, and if we bought new electric buses, the agreement, I mean, it's not just they would agree to talk with us, but this agreement would not apply, as it is written, to any new buses that we have. Correct. This agreement just applies to the installation of the charging equipment for the first two buses. So we would come back to them and would have another agreement, yes. Thank you. Ms. Tice? I was just, just curious, and forgive me if this is in here and I missed it, but is this just for buses? I noticed we were planning to buy a hybrid um, minivan, and that would be charged elsewhere. Yes. So we have on our secondary campus um, EV charges in place for cars that we currently use for any of our um, hybrid vehicles <clears throat> that are not buses. So this is solely buses on the property yard lot. Yeah, I have I have a couple questions. Um, one is um, has to do with um, this may be more technical, but the way that the agreement is re written is that there'll be essentially a credit on the times that Dominion uses the um, the um, power that's the electricity that's stored in the batteries. Um, do we know? Um, you know, and, and given that there's only two buses, that's likely going to be a pretty small amount of electricity, you know, given the overall demands of the system. Um, do we have, can, can, can you enlighten us on what the, um, what the way that our rate structure with Dominion is for electricity? And, and, and the reason why I'm asking is that looking ahead, if we had eight buses and we're capable of putting half a megawatt of juice on the system, we'd probably want to have certain discounts and other and other factors in place. So I'm just trying to get a sense, you know, looking ahead, how that might, how we might look at a future agreement. Sure, I fully agree. We currently participate in VEPCA, um, which is a co-op in terms of electricity, and our rate plans are set through there, and we do have the ability to modify them. So as we bring these buses on, and in fact, one of the things now that we've brought the high school on is we will go back now that we have some standard usage and relook at those VEPCA contracts, and we can switch our plan depending on what is financially in our best interest. Is that, is, I'm, I'm sorry, is, is that plan time of use or is it fixed rate? 
I believe we're currently on a fixed rate plan. I don't know if they have time use. I would have to check. Okay, very good. Yeah, then this is a question for another day. Just wanted to get a sense for how this might play out over the long term. Thank you. Any other questions? You all are like the dynamic duo over there. Uh, thank you for answering all of our questions. Uh, does, uh, I guess, no other questions if I could seek uh, a motion to authorize this agreement? Yes, Vice Chair Gould. I move that the school board authorizes the school board chair to sign the charging support program charging station participation agreement between the Falls Church City School Board, the City of Falls Church, and the Virginia Electric and Power Company as presented, subject to changes approved by the superintendent that do not materially adversely affect the school board's position. Thank you. May I have a second? Yes. Thank you, Ms. Silverman. Second. Thank you. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Thank you. The motion passes. We'll now go on to uh, agenda item 7.04, waiver first reading and approval and adoption of second reading. And I, is it okay to? You can. This is now the um, Trisha Minson show. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Ms. Minson, please. Just what we all always wanted. Thank you. Um, this evening for waiver first reading, second reading, and adoption of policy, we have nine policies. These are all changed based on recommendations from the VSBA. As you all know, policy, most of the board's policies have to be reviewed every five years, so these are part of the VSBA's five-year review of policies. Um, I do want to lump all these policies together because some of the policies only have a change in the adoption date. Some have just the removal of previous policies that um, the board has now adopted, so we don't need to reference the old numbered policies. Um, one policy, BDDA, changes the title from notification of school board meetings to just notification of meetings, since that would include meetings of school board committees. Um, happy to answer any individual questions on these policies, but um, none of the proposed changes from the VSBA materially change what it is that we're doing or what the content of these policies are. Um, they do change the words from will, shall to will in a few places um, and take out he's and she's, but happy to answer individual questions on these nine policies, if there are any. I have uh, uh, two questions on BDDA, um, and maybe this goes to you, maybe this goes to Dr. Noonan, I'm not sure. Um, un under regular meetings, it says that um, the school board and any committees should uh, give notice of the t date, time, and location of regular meetings by posting such notice on its website, if any, and then placing in a prominent public location. Um, can we? just be in the habit of making sure that meetings are going to be in the morning announcements um, just so that, you know, I don't necessarily, you know, before I was on the school board, I don't know if I necessarily looked in the public place where things were prominently posted. I don't know, even know where that would have been. Um, um, so I can answer the second yeah. part of that first, and then um, let me work with John um, about uh, future meetings. But, um, Anytime there's a meeting, the, the first place it gets posted is um, on the doors at central office, and then on the website, and it also goes onto the app. So for example, when we had the special meeting last Thursday, the moment we learned from um, Chair Downs that we were gonna have a meeting, we told John, it instantly got posted on those, those sites. Um, we do try to put in most of our 
uh, morning announcements that there is up, that there are upcoming meetings. So, for example, um, I, I believe it was even in today's that um, there's an upcoming meeting. So, I think it already is part of our regular practice. But uh, I'll confirm. Yeah, that'd be. I mean, I. I'm not one that would have seen a posting at central office on the app or I forget the third website the website I probably wouldn't have noticed that um, in prior times. Did you want to say something? Sorry. I also wanted to add to what dr. Noonan shared Marty as the board clerk also mm -hmm. sends it here to City Hall and it's posted here a paper copy at City Hall and we do have and it's included at lines 35 to 41 of the policy direct notification so anyone who is asked to be notified gets that notice and it does go out via board docs to anyone who has said I'd like to know anytime there is a public meeting so that's another method by which members of the community could indicate they'd want to receive that direct notification that a meeting is occurring mm -hmm. I, I like the the morning announcements idea I just think that um, really covers um, public notice, you know, more sufficiently to people who might not check all the other places. Um, and then under special meetings, um, you know, it says that meeting notice should be given contemporaneously. And that's pretty, that's a pretty high bar to meet. Um, you know, the minute, the moment that the school board is told that we're going to have a special meeting, um, you know, Mr. Brett immediately at his computer to send out a public notice. Um, I guess that notice is met by having a posting at central office but again unless you're walking by central office you might not see that notice um, I know that the last special meeting we had it took I think maybe an extra day to get it into the morning announcements um, if I, I think that we were noticed we were notified on Tuesday that there would be a special meeting and then it was in morning announcements on Thursday I do know for that that as soon as the board was notified, Marty Goodell did post it on board docs. So anyone who had signed up to get that notice from board docs would have received it at that time. It is very important under the Virginia Code that we do have contemporaneous notice. So it's not something that the board finds out on Tuesday and the community finds out on Wednesday. It does have to be given at the same time. And it was noticed uh, immediately. It just may not have been noticed in morning announcements, but it was it was publicly noticed um, with respect to the Virginia statute. And, and I'm, I don't doubt that by law it was noticed. I'm saying in practicality, whether it's sufficiently noticed just for the public to really be aware. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure that by law it was, it was properly noticed. I just think that for the community's best interest in order to be noticed, you know, the, if, if the board knows on Tuesday that we're going to have a meeting on Thursday, if it can just be morning announcements that Wednesday, would I think would be beneficial to the community so they know what's going on. I, we probably need to maybe put morning announcements on a work session at some point because okay. it, it hasn't ever been used for those purposes. Um, it's it's been used to communicate things that are happening in schools, um, not necessarily for board announcements. Um, so maybe we could we could put that on and and talk about it at a future date. But for now, we can we can certainly add it in. And I'm, we've had two special meetings since January first. Let's you know. Hope that uh, yeah, hopefully we won't we're have any done more special with special meetings, meetings for right. a while. But uh, it it has come up now in, in my head, you know, at two separate times. Is uh, is there um, a particular issue that we're trying to resolve? Uh, well, you know, I think people being noticed at six forty-five in the and again not legally noticed, you know, by uh -huh. posting the paper, but you know, being really informed at six forty-five in the morning that there's going to be a meeting at eight. You know, if they really were interested in watching it in real time, you know, they you know, they may have not had the opportunity. I think getting that extra day of being able to plan properly might have been helpful. Okay. 
just just so just so you're just for everybody's information, we had I think 73 viewers that morning, um, and that's more than we've had all year. So um, that was good. So we did have some viewership, which was which was great. But I and, and I'm guessing it's from the morning morning announcements yeah. and not from the paper. Yeah. So, and yes, Ms. Tice. Oh, I was just going to to kind of echo all the sentiments. I think morning announcements is, is amazing. I think it's one of our best resources. I also do think it's a balance between putting the most important information because it's so well read and not so much information that it stops being read because it becomes cumbersome. And I'm sure that's a delicate balance. And I think we do a good job on that. But I, I would support it being on a work session someday to make sure that we, we have some parameters in place to keep that balance. But I actually was just um, interested when I was reading through the policies about the direct notice. Um, or the direct notification, I think that's such a great option. And I'm sure, again, it's technically shared somewhere. But is there a way that, or is it part of like an annual thing that we let the community know about that option? Or is there a way that we could just sort of, on a, regu on a regular basis, just put it out and so people know that that's an option? Because I'm sure there are people in the community who would appreciate that. I love getting my text message right before the meeting start to remind me, oh, the meeting is, we, well, not before I was here, you know. <laughs> um, now I know. But Hopefully before they're that on was, your calendars. Yes, yes. Um, but before, that was really helpful. So I can imagine something like the direct notification would be helpful for community members who are trying to keep up. And Sure. Why don't, we'll take a look at that. I know we're veering way off with this policy discussion, but uh, Mr. Brett is in the audience, and I just wanted to acknowledge you, Mr. Brett, for the fantastic job that you've been doing for the school board, um, particularly over the last year that I've been on the school board. I've noticed more and more that you're making it more user friendly. You have buttons to click on so people can get right to the agenda. I hear so many compliments from members of the public about the fast forward links because for some reason they don't want to watch a 400, four hour meeting. It feels like 400 hours sometimes. But um, so this, I just want to publicly thank you um, for that. And I hope you realize that all these comments are because we know what a great resource morning announcements is. And so we're trying to get, get ourselves in there as much as possible. So thank you for your hard work on that. Okay, so uh, let's get back. Any other questions um, on any of these policies that, um, are in front of us right now. We're at 7.04. Okay. Let me just, just scroll up here. Okay, if I could have a motion then um, to uh, approve these first readings and adopt the second readings. We're at 7.04. Yes, Mr. Reinger. Thank you, Madam Chair. I move that the school board waive first reading and approve and adopt second reading of policies BB, school board legal status, BBAA, board member authority, BCB, school board officers, BCC, school board clerk, BDB, special school board meetings, BDDA, notification of meetings, BDDF, voting method, BF, board policy manual, and CBCA, disclosure statement required by superintendent. Thank you, Mr. Reinger. May I have a second? second. Thank you, Ms. Tice. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries. We're now at 7.05, approval of second reading and adoption of policies, and I'll turn it back over to Ms. Minson. Thank you. This evening we have three policies for second reading. 
Um, these policies were presented last month, and there were no changes to the first policy, DI, financial accounting and reporting. This policy would incorporate um, the previous version of the policy and um, policy 4.18 audits. Any questions about policy DI, financial accounting and reporting? Hearing none, the next is policy DN, disposal of surplus items. This policy would replace the current policy 4.37 by the name sale, exchange, or lease of property. There were no proposed changes after first reading. Any questions about policy DN? All right, the final policy for second reading is policy KGA, sales and solicitations in schools. This would replace current policy 4.24, sales calls and demonstrations. At first reading, there was the recommendation to add clarification of who would give permission for the sales that would benefit educational programs of the schools. So that was added at line seven and is consistent with the previous policy 4.24. Any questions about policy KJA? Um, I think the American Heart Association is a fantastic charitable organization. Um, I'm happy that my daughter participates in, I forget what it's called, some... Jump rope for heart? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Jump we rope just, for we heart. just wrote a check for something. I forget exactly what it was, but <laughs> we participated. And I'm not saying we shouldn't support the American Heart Association. I'm just curious, when I was reading this policy, how that doesn't conflict with this policy. My understanding is that would actually fall under fundraising, which is a separate school board policy that the board has not yet looked at. So I believe it's in our um, numbered section five. And I know that there is a corresponding VSBA policy that we would hope to bring the board soon to review that. Okay, thank you. I thought it was under solicitations. So thank you for the clarification. Sure. Any other questions about policy KJA? I'm assuming that I had a similar question when I was thinking about Give Day and how we um, some of those groups raise money for charities. Would that also be under the fundraising policy down the road? Okay. Yes, it would. Thanks. Okay, thank you. Uh, if I could have a motion for 7.05. Yes, Vice Chair Gould. I move that the school board approve second reading and adoption of policies DI, financial accounting and reporting, DN, disposal of surplus items, and KGA, sales and solicitations in schools. Thank you. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Thank you. Motion carries. And we are now at agenda item 7.06, Ms. Minson. Thank you for uh, my final movement before the board tonight is the presentation of first reading of policies. The first policy is BDC, closed meetings. This policy had been adopted by the board back in January 2020. It's time for review because the VSBA has made changes to it. And those changes I decided to bring for first reading since they were much more substantive than the changes that were brought for waiver of first reading. Um, that said, the the structure of this policy previously had just referenced the Virginia Code um, section on the Virginia FOIA exemptions for which there could be closed meetings. Now those are spelled out. And in looking at um, Virginia Code section 2.23711, um, the, what the VSBA did is used word for word from the Virginia Code those provisions of closed meetings that would apply for school board meetings. So. Um, this language maybe is not exactly everything the board would like, but does come directly from code. I'm happy to answer any questions the board might have about this proposed language from the VSBA for policy BDC. Yes, Mr. Ortiz, Dr. Ortiz. Yeah, um, uh, Ms. Minson, so um, can you tell me, is there any substantive difference between keeping the policy as is, there's a struck 
a struck clause regarding specifically VA code section 2.2-3711. Um, is there any substantive difference between keeping the policy and adopting the proposed policy? No, I think the only difference would be this would allow someone who's interested in knowing why the school board goes into close to see it written out on the policy rather than going to find the Virginia Code section. Thank you. Mr. Anger. So this may be more of a comment. I, I don't agree with doing this. Um, it just, I think it's a bad practice to copy language from statute and stick it in a regulation, especially when you, you know, there are small changes made along the way. Um, I, it, it's not, it's very simple to go out and find these sorts of things. I don't think it's worth the burden of doing this. And this is not, you know, all of the statute. This has been selected, the pieces that are there. The, there's lots of opportunity for problems. And what this means is anytime one of those things gets tweaked at all, we've got to change the policy rather than just saying we follow the statute. And I don't think it really informs anybody in a way that they're going to really care about it. So my preference here would be to not adopt, not incorporate all of these sections by reference, and just keep it the way it is with the reference to the statute, which will reduce the burden in the future um, and really doesn't, I mean, it, it won't help us or anybody else at all to make this change. It's just buying work when all there is is a downside and that you're going to make a mistake and you're not going to adequately copy the statute. So I, I don't think it's a good idea to do this. Thank you, Mr. Iyengar. Yes, Ms. Silverman. Are other jurisdictions doing this? Jurisdictions that follow the VSBA model policies likely are um, moving forward to make these changes, but these are board policies and it's up to this board how it wants to do it. I do think that either following the VSBA language and having it be word for word or removing it and keeping just the reference to section 2.23711 um, is fine. I think that's within this board's purview. It wouldn't practically change what it is that we're doing as far as going into closed meetings for these reasons. Yes. I then tend to agree um, that it seems duplicative and it seems to just cause a burden down the road when something gets tweaked, unless um, Dr. Noonan feels differently, unless Ms. Minson feels differently. Again, I'm just to repeat what uh, Ms. Minson said, it's a, these are your policies and we'll, we work at the will of, of the board on policy. So why don't we, uh, so this is just, I don't know, Mr. Reinger, do you have any a, a sense of an idea of how you want to proceed on this? I just wouldn't, I wouldn't make the change. <laughs> right, right. So, but do we, for um, point of order, do we then go ahead and approve this or do we? It, it, yeah. If I may, I'd yes, recommend please. that the board um, propose that because this is first reading, we come back to second reading without those changes in and then we update the date as of the next meeting so it's adopted by the board. So it will reflect that it's been recently changed by the board. It will be reviewed within the specified time period. Um, and what I'm hearing from the board, and I want to make sure that I'm saying enough head nods, is I would remove everything that's in red. So in second reading, I would strike through that. I would keep in the language at line six that says specifically Virginia Code section 2.23711. And then I would update the adoption date to be the school board meeting date in April. And that would be what's brought for the board in second reading next month. Does that sound amenable to the group? Yes, I'm seeing everyone good with that? Seeing head nods? Okay. So we'd go ahead and, and approve this motion for first reading. Okay. 
All right. So if I could have someone make the motion for 7.06. I have one more policy. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Oh, Ms. Vincent, I'm sorry. Please go ahead. <laughs> I'll make it quick. Um, the final policy this evening is policy GCBC, staff benefits. We currently don't have a policy that states what this policy states, which is a simple two-sentence of um, the school board recognizing the need for benefits to promote employment and retention of high-quality um, personnel and effectively serve educational needs of students and accordingly benefits are provided as established by the board. We do have a corresponding regulation um, that then we would update the numbering and have go along with this as a regulation that talks about staff benefits and I believe that talks about payroll, how payroll is um, certain monies are taken out of payroll to pay for staff benefits. But many thanks to Ms. Michael because we've been slowly going through the policies to try to get them up to date and this will allow us to get another one. Um, no material changes in what it is that we're doing but to move towards adoption of the VSBA model policies. Happy to answer any questions about policy GCBC staff benefits. Yes, Ms. Tice. Um, is there a place, um, maybe it's just in the regulation, is there a place where benefits is defined or is that needed? Yes, probably the place for employees in terms of getting the best benefit information is every single year we update an employee handbook and they sign that handbook, right? So that would be um, probably the most comprehensive place that has a detail of the benefits. Um, the regulation, as Ms. Minson indicated, really talked about um, that we deducted the cost of the benefits approved by the board from people's pay. Um, but the summary of benefits is best in the handbook. Right. I guess my question is just if, if, I, if I'm supposed to be making sure that we recognize the need for benefits, is, is it, would it be helpful or recommended to, to define what that even means, what, what benefits are? I mean, I know what benefits are. <laughs> I'm just saying, is it, is it Am I alone here in thinking that? It's just a question. Yeah, I don't know if, if you would do that through the policy, um, but more as a regulation. Um, and, and that's how we would break it down okay. from there. Any other questions? Okay, now if I could have a motion for 7.06, please. Yes, Ms. Ranger. Thank you, Chair. <clears throat> I move that the school board approve first reading of policy BDC closed meetings with the changes as agreed to by the board in the meeting, and GCBC staff benefits as presented. Thank you, Mr. Reininger. May I have a second? Second. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. All those in favor say yes. 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 All those opposed say no. Thank you. The motion carries. And we are now at section eight of our agenda, future agenda topics. And uh, does anyone have any future agenda topics? I know we spoke earlier this evening that maybe we would maybe do not just more announcements, but maybe a sort of a big communications. I know we have now a combined secondary newsletter at, at the secondary schools, which I love. Um, and uh, just, but there's some, you know, newsletters. Maybe we could do sort of a big picture communications um, piece at some point. I'd be happy to work that in. Okay. And hopefully everybody saw that we started slotting in um, all of the topics that you've shared with us, and that was in the Friday um, update to the board. That is very helpful. Thank you. Any other agenda items? Yes, Dr. Ortiz. Yeah, this is just to pique my own interest. As we get the um, Dominion charging infrastructure in place, I think I'm probably in the next year or so, if we can get an update on how that, that, that system is working, and maybe just from the transportation, how we're managing the, the whole fleet, that would be a nice thing to hear about. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. 
We'll move on now to Section 9, Superintendent's Report. Dr. Noonan. Great. Thank you. Um, well, the big news is that our, our Mustangs won last night um, and are, are headed to the state championship um, at the Siegel Center um, tomorrow night, no, Thursday night in Richmond. Um, and that game is uh, at 6 o'clock, and it will be streamed on the NFHS um, site, which is the, the high school sports site. So if anybody's interested in watching and can't make it to the Siegel Center, that would uh, be the place to go. Um, really excited that um, we've been able to collaborate with the Falls Church Ed Foundation around March Wellness, as opposed to March Madness, <laughs> sort of picking up on that. Um, and the idea was to allow some of our teachers to write grants that would allow them as teams um, to be able to go out and do some team building um, in an off-campus activity, and then also do some work around wellness um, and how they're going to be moving forward with wellness for the rest of the year. And uh, the Falls Church Ed Foundation came to the table with nearly $30,000, and in about a day and a half, there were grants that took up the full amount. So our teachers got involved in that very quickly, teachers and staff got involved in that really quickly, and very excited about um, that collaboration with the Ed Foundation. Um, it is uh, Women's History Month, uh, being March, and there are a number of activities that we have planned uh, to celebrate um, leadership of women. Um, there's a weekly podcast series with students interviewing community members. Each uh, week, a leader in our schools will be sharing stories about their life experiences, and our History Matters webpage uh, has a calendar of programs uh, and ideas for families to be able to do with their students at home. So uh, if, you're, if you're interested, please go out and look at our History Matters webpage. Um, congratulations to the Meridian Wind Ensemble. Um, they, uh, on their District 10 assessment results, got straight, um, straight top scores. They got straight A's and A pluses uh, in all their categories while performing the highest level of difficulty in their music. Um, these readings included stage presence, sight reading performances, and the groups performed music that they'd never, never seen before. So it was pretty amazing. Um, so congratulations to them. Um, this week is the debut of the Middle School Theater program. Uh, they will be putting on High School Musical Junior, um, and we're excited to that, um, uh, to see that, and it will be available streaming um, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And uh, if you didn't, um, if you haven't seen High School Musical, the theme song is We're All In This Together, and it seems appropriate as we sort of come uh, to, to where we are in, with respect to COVID. Um, the Middle Years Program um, Personal Project Showcase uh, is for our 10th graders who've been working on their MYP personal projects, uh, and they will start on Monday, uh, March 14th, um, from 7 to 8 in the high, uh, Meridian High School Innovation Commons, and it will be the first sort of big um, work display util utilizing our new building, and we're really excited about that. Uh, so please meet us in the Innovation Commons on March 14th between 7 and 8. And then Rising Kindergartner Information Night. It's that time of year again. Um, so parents, families, and guardians of students who are going to be five years old by September 30th are invited to our Rising Kindergarten Information Night. Um, the virtual program will offer a brief overview of the school day, curriculum, daycare programs, and registration requirements. And I, I want to just make sure that everybody knows about that so we're, we're getting the word out. Um, so we know how many kindergartners to expect. That's the hardest number for us to nail down in the projections. And so hopefully everyone who has a kiddo that's going to be five by September 30th will come join our schools. Um, and so two, two other things. Um, one, we want to welcome um, all of the families who have relocated to Falls Church from the U Ukraine. 
Um, we've had a number, um, I think 12 is the most recent number of families. Um, we welcome you and, and want to do anything we can to um, support you as we go forward. And then this is the first full week that students uh, and families have an option on masking. And I just want to remind everybody um, that it's personal choice whether you're going to wear a mask or not. And uh, there's no place for bullying either way. And so um, if a student wants to wear a mask, that's fine. And if they don't, that's fine too. So um, we'll be working with our administrators to make sure that we continue to maintain um, the integrity of our program and the integrity of our kids by not um, giving anybody a hard time one way or another. So thanks, thanks for that and uh, good meeting. Thank you very much, Dr. Noonan. We are, does anyone have any questions or follow-ups with Dr. Noonan? Yes, Ms. Silverman. The kindergarten program, um, is that going to be offered hybrid this year? I know last year was all online and actually as a working mom and I had two kids upstairs doing I don't know what, I was able to participate without leaving the house. It's all virtual. Oh, it's all virtual? Yes. Okay. We got the best, um, we've gotten the best uh, results of getting people when it's been virtual. Um, it actually has, just by the way, and for what it's worth, it really has broken down a number of barriers around equity too, because parents who can't get off and come are able to um, participate that way. Um, open house and back to school nights were that way this year. We had a lot of families that were very thankful that worked a night shift that could take a break and watch on their phone. Um, so we'll continue to utilize and leverage our technology as we move forward um, into the new normal. But the new normal is also uh, utilizing some things that worked really well during, during COVID as well. Thank you. Okay, we're gonna move on now to section 10, board and student liaison comments. And I will, not to put you on the spot, Ms. Hamid, but I will start with you. Um, there isn't much to report at the high school, but like Dr. Noonan said, the girls basketball team won yesterday and they're going to BCU on Thursday. So roll stangs and spring sports are beginning. So come and support the scrimmages and games are going to be coming up soon. And the SCA is hosting a spring dance soon for all grades. So that should be fun. It'll be the first dance that we've had actually inside of our building. So it'd be a really great way to utilize all of our new spaces and see how we can decorate and have some have some fun in there. Um, other than that, that's it for me. Thank you. Thank you so much. That will be that'll be great to have a social event in the new high school. Something <laughs> something we haven't been able to do. And then all night grad will really break it in a couple months later, right? <laughs> Thank you, uh, Ms. Silverman. Do you have any reports from? And I don't think you had any meetings yet, right? Nothing to report. Okay. Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. I did have some activity, um, and I seem to be following Dr. Noonan around with some of these meetings, so there's going to be a little bit of repeating. Um, the first, uh, I did go to the Ed Foundation strategic meeting, their first in-person strategic meeting in three years, um, and uh, we were uh, presented the uh, audit results, which they had outstanding uh, marks on their uh, audit and their internal controls. Learned about a number of the initiatives that the Ed Foundation has provided to the community and to the schools. Um, and had a, there was a, a participating in a great discussion about how the Ed Foundation can support uh, the schools, uh, especially given the uh, how we're uh, hopefully exiting or co coexisting with COVID and dealing with the, the stress. And as Dr. Noonan mentioned, the, um, the partnership with the schools and the Ed Foundation was uh, a great success with the March Wellness Fund and how quickly that was 
taken advantage of. Um, so that was really great to see up close how the Ed Foundation and the schools partner very quickly um, to an, an issue that was raised and work together to get that. So that was the Ed Foundation. I also participated in the uh, Mary Ellen Henderson uh, PTA. Um, and that was, as Dr. Noon mentioned, uh, a lot of the focus is on the high school musical junior, the, uh, the, the, um, the musical this week that is Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Um, also heard about the uh, bake sale that they that they helped uh, sponsor for, uh, for um, uh, Ukraine uh, families and students. Um, and uh, they also talked about the diversity perspectives on race and equity that is upcoming. Uh, that they're sponsoring, and then a number of other fundraisers they participated. And finally, this morning I participated in the chamber meeting uh, for the first time, and that was uh, great to see uh, a, a lot of the uh, different side of the community engaging around uh, uh, the chamber. They talked about their social media initiatives. They talked about uh, the budget and the membership uh, campaign, uh, which was uh, positive, and it was great to be part of uh, a different side of the city um, for, for a bit. So those are the three meetings I attended. Thank you, Vice Chair Gould. I have a couple quick updates. Uh, I back, uh, I guess, February 15th, uh, PEAK met, and that's for those of you who are not aware, that's the Professional Employee Advisory Committee. And um, a lot back then, we were in the middle of February, so a lot of that meeting was focused on um, COVID protocols and masks, masking, which um, so we don't need to go over that, but um, some of the other topics of conversation were um, talking about retirement, uh, healthcare, enrollment, and I know Ms. Michael and Dr. Noonan are working with the staff on that. Uh, we talked about national board stipends, which is, as this board will remember, Mr. Reidinger proposed increasing that. So that's, the teachers were ecstatic to see there was, um, that stipend was increased to $3,000. Again, thank you to Dr. Noonan and Ms. Michael for finding that, that money. And um, there's also talk about facility usage. Um, when our facilities are rented out, um, sometimes teachers are unaware um, that their classroom is gonna be used by outside groups. And so Ms. Michael is working with the staff on that. Um, I'm also part of the AEC, AEAC, it's the Administrative Employee Advisory Council. And I actually wasn't able to attend that meeting, um, but I did read through the notes. And this is a group of higher level um, administrators. And um, so they talked at their last meeting, talked about um, how to um, build better communication between the administrators of the different schools and central office. Uh, they talked about looking at job duties and salaries of the administrators of our school system as compared to the job duties and salaries of administrators at other school systems in the surrounding community. And also just talked about, which I think we can all under, understand and appreciate, is you know our principals and administrators have been trying to hold up the teachers during this difficult time. Um, you know, the stress and the, the just being worn out and um, tired, and, and our administrators are as well. So they're working on trying to support each other through that. And uh, finally, the uh, Meridian PTSA, as Dr. Newman mentioned, they are working to support the MYP Personal Project Showcase, which is next week. They're working with Ms. Khalif, the social worker, to support the families from Ukraine. They're hosting a practice SAT coming up, and they're also doing a fundraiser for our all-night grad at Bad Pizza tomorrow night. And I'll turn it over to Dr. Ortiz if you have any updates. Yeah, I have a couple updates. Thank you, Chair, Chair Downs. Um, so on February 15th, the um, athletic boosters met. Um, that, um, there was a whole, whole lot occurred at that meeting, but the key points is uh, a few key points are that the Falls Church Education Foundation came with the big check to present the um, proceeds from the Little City Scramble 
um, which was highly successful. I don't play golf, so I'm going to avoid avoid it um, this year too. But everybody's looking forward to having it again. Um, the uh, the the next is that they wanted to to, to give um, uh, the, the, there was some um, some acknowledgement of some very successful winter sports, including wrestling and swimming, as well as as we know um, girls basketball. Um, there is um, the mulch sale is going on. Um, and so if you need mulch, I, I, I hope that the date hasn't passed, but if you need mulch, go to the Athletic Boosters website and, and place your mulch order. If you order a truckload, they'll deliver it. If not, you have to go get it yourself. Um, and then there was some discussion about exactly um, the best way to, um, to provide uh, stipends to coaches for their professional development. So that was, I think, a really interesting meeting, and, and, and I enjoyed um, the first one there. The second was I, I participated in the... Um, in the, the March 1st um, elementary PTA meeting. Um, the key things that are coming up there are the Hippo Tiger Games on April 30th, and then International Night is on May 14th. Um, also, they uh, expressed a, a lot of thanks. I think all the PTAs really appreciated Dr. Noonan visiting on the 23rd to provide the detailed budget overview. So that's, um, that's my update for the month. Thank you, Dr. Ortiz. Mr. Reidinger. Uh, nothing to report for me, but, but to say, if anybody wants to go to a fun event, they should go to the Hippo Tiger Games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Ms. Tice. Yes, I was, my thoughts exactly. I think I'm more excited even than my kids are for HTG. Um, I went to two meetings last week. I went to the Rec and Parks um, board and really enjoyed getting to know those those people in that part of the community, um, there is a vacancy on that board, so that's obviously run through the city, but anyone who's interested, um, I would encourage to apply um, for that. And the enrollment for all of the programming through the community center has skyrocketed, which is great to see um, as, as we come to this new phase in COVID that people are, are looking for more opportunities and more comfortable enrolling in opportunities through the community center. So that was exciting. And then there were a couple presentations from from different groups around town, and one of them was for um, advocating to make it more bike accessible, which I found really interesting and also, I thought, applicable to our students who are trying to bike their way to the new campus or the, you know, the renovated campus and um, trying to find ways really from the entire community, not just, you know, down broad or down the bike trail, um, but really trying to connect all the different parts of the community with um, with biking. So that was really interesting. And then I also, uh, last night, we had a great meeting with the SEEK, which is the Special Ed Advisory Committee. Um, they've started a new wonderful idea, I thought, where they're, they're almost like little mini professional development opportunities for the committee members bringing in um, experts from our schools to teach them about certain topics. I missed, before I was the liaison, I missed last month's um, with executive functioning, functioning, but this month's was um, post-secondary transition and with Liz McCarthy and she was so helpful and so the group just was really hanging on every word and learned so much that then we it kind of led to a great conversation on how to share a lot of that information with the broader community um, so that was a really helpful conversation and then um, on top of that then there was a great discussion on on the best ways for for these committees to to be advocates and to kind of uh, concentrate their efforts and their priorities and what the best way is to do that. I think they're looking at, at uh, supporting paraprofessionals and the paraprofessional pay and um, how to also advocate for um, unmet staffing needs and relieving pressure points on, on staff members. So that was a really great conversation as well. 
Thank you, Ms. Tice. Is that in, for the Special Education Advisory Committee? Will they, they'll be doing that every month, having different speakers come in? Yes. Yeah. So, and then, you know, it also came to that same point that we've touched on tonight, um, or Dr. Noonan was just sharing. Um, there's so much advantage to doing in person and trying to, to invite parents together to meet, but then there's also a lot of advantages to keeping things virtual and whether you record them or you live stream them, at least the first 20 minutes of the meetings um, was just so valuable to the broader community, not just um, not just special ed parents and not just um, the people on the committee. Right. That, that's what I was going to suggest. If there is, if that portion could be recorded, that would be a great resource to our families. Yes. Um, there was a lot of conversation on what the best way to do that would be because there's a lot of great, great experts in our town and I learned a lot from the presentation myself. So. Right. I would say that's one of the best parts of being on these different committees is you learn so many things <laughs> that you didn't, weren't even aware of. So great. Any other um, comments about this, about our committees? And okay. I'll move on to section 11, approval of, of, of minutes. And I'd like to ask for unanimous consent to approve the minutes from March 9th, 2021. And hearing no, no objections, the minutes of March 9th, 2021 are approved. We'll go on to section 12, materials for board review. Uh, these are materials that you all can, uh, if you haven't already, just take a minute to look at uh, our enrollment numbers and as well in our monthly budget. And uh, I guess that is it for the evening, unless anyone has anything to, Mr. Okay, Mr. Reinger looked at me. Yes, Dr. Ortiz. Yeah, I noticed in the, in the enrollment update that I think it was, there's a, uh, there's a, there was an increase a pretty significant increase. Does that doesn't include though the the, the new arrivals at this stage, or does it? Um, it is starting to is reflect starting to. that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you to all the uh, staff that, who are joining us this evening, who spent their evening with us, and thanks to everyone watching, and have a good evening. <laughs>